Hello, and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast. The show for people on the go, who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about Colossians 3, 1-11, and considers this question. Having been raised with Christ, what practices and ways of life are appropriate for us, and what routines should we do away with? Let's hear today's message. Well, it is good to be back. Most of you are aware, but if you're new, maybe you're not. Uh, My family and I have been gone for a couple of weeks. We took vacation, time for rest. Uh, I'm cued, so I'm I'm a little rusty. I didn't have my microphone in when I was giving announcements, and so if you couldn't hear me, that's what was going on. Hopefully, it's good now. But but we're back, and we're glad to be back. Um, we needed rest. We went down to Buckeye Lake. Some of you asked, where did you go? How did you do? Buckeye Lake is east of Columbus. Uh, we have a house there that my parents bought a long time ago. And it's uh, one of these places where just time slows down. You have a place like that? Here's a picture uh, that I took uh, one of the evenings at Buckeye Lake. It's just time slows down. One of the one of the things we love most are the sunsets. You know, normally you think about sunsets at the beautiful places of the world, um, not Ohio, but, but that's what it looks like nearly every evening uh, at Buckeye Lake, unless uh, there is smoke from Canada that's distracting it. It was a good time, a place where time slows down. I think I took two bathing suits and wore them the whole time, and I never shaved once. It was gross, really, really gross. And as I was thinking about that and re-entering into normal pastoral life, it occurred to me that that reality speaks to and highlights what the Scripture's bringing to us this morning. Could you imagine, for example, if when I came back, I did not shave and wore that bathing suit when I went to the home of Glenn and Sharon Meerdink, for example, uh, for a visit, or to visit Jerry Smith in the hospital. Could you imagine if your pastor showed up in a bathing suit, uh, raggedy and unshaven like that? It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? And yet the scripture this morning suggests that we often do something just as absurd, just as terrible, that we... Uh, having claimed life in Jesus Christ who is king with a kingdom uh, marked by all sorts of, of distinct values instead of putting on the values and ways of being of that kingdom, clothe ourselves with all sorts of earthly ways of being and values that have nothing to do with the person and the character of Jesus. Like a pastor who would make a visit in a bathing suit, we walk around in outfits wholly unbecoming of us. The scripture puts that in front of us this morning and and asks us to recognize the clothing we wear. This morning, uh, we'll start what I hope you'll think of as kind of like a two-part sermon, right? So this week, we'll look at uh, verses 1 through 11 and think about those things that were called in Christ to take off. Look at verse 5, to put to death. 
or put away. Things that still mark our life but should not. This morning's passage is hard. It can be hard to preach and maybe hard to listen to. Next week, however, we get, to, we get to spend time thinking about all that we're called to put on in Jesus. All the good stuff, the love and the grace, the compassion, the mercy, all of that. But before we can do that, we've got to get undressed. And so that's what we'll do uh, this morning. And so before we go any further, can, can you pray with me that the Spirit would speak to each one of us? Oh, Holy Spirit, we do give thanks that you take these words written so long ago by a man and, and you impress them on us. For these are not just human words. This is your word. And so, Lord, would you help us to receive it as such? Speak to us personally, gently, but truthfully. Move us to take action in ways that honor you and bring us in line with who you are in our life. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, again, hopefully you do have this journal and you have it open in front of you. If you, if you don't, you can slip out and get one even now. If you'd rather use the Pew Bible, uh, open that up. But we're in Colossians chapter 3. And this is a really important passage because it's a transition within the letter. Up until this point, the focus of the letter has been on doctrine and theology. It's been on on who is Jesus and recognizing what is true about God. And so hopefully in your journal, you've got verses such as some of these underlined and marked, like verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, where Jesus is lifted up as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one uh, by whom and through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. Or verse 20 of that same chapter is an important one, that, that through Jesus all things are reconciled, whether on earth or in heaven, by the blood of his cross. Because the letter focuses on our life together primarily as the church It's important to note chapter 2, verse 7, for example, that in Jesus, the church is rooted and built up in him, Jesus, and established in faith. And finally, our theme verse, theme for the whole sermon, is in chapter 1, verse 27, that by Jesus, we together have the hope of glory, if indeed he resides in us. It is really important that Paul started with this doctrine and theology, even though many of us are the type of people that we go, yeah, 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 let's get out of the head. Tell me what to do. Raise your hand if you're a tell me what to do person. Like, I just just want to get to what to do. I'm that way, right? I'm that way, but, but it's theology matters. It's important because who we understand Jesus to be naturally uh, determines how we will follow him. And so verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 are kind of a final theological assertion about our life together in Christ before Paul gets really practical about what that should mean for our life. So before we move to the what do we do, let's make sure we understand what Paul's saying in these first four verses. 
He focuses on Jesus himself and those two most important aspects of his life, his crucifixion and death and his resurrection. He reflects on those two realities and says, look, if you are one who follows Jesus, you will identify with him in his death and in his resurrection. He begins, you'll note, with that phrase, if you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ. It's a statement of identity that your life reveals who you belong to or who you are attached to. Jesus has been raised if you have been raised with him. It's put there provocatively as a question, not to call into a question our identity in Christ, but to like pull us into an observation of our own life and say, does our life reflect Jesus? You know, I've used similar language with my kids. Maybe you have too. I'll say something like, now if you're my son, or if you're my daughter, I mean, what am I saying? I'm not suggesting that we need to get a paternity test, right? I am saying, look, here's who you are. Here are the values of our family. Who's, here I, here's who I have always taught you to be. Now, live it out. The scripture is doing something similar here. As Jesus has been raised, so too have we been given a new life if we have surrendered to him. I want you to note uh, in, chapter, or in verse 1, the phrase, where Christ is, which is, seated at the right hand of God. Boy, if you have a journal and a pen, I would, if I were you, underline that phrase, seated at the right hand of God. I would underline it, and then I would write something like authority next to that. Because what, what the scripture is helping us to recognize is not something about geography, but not where Jesus is sitting on a map, right? But authority, the one who died and rose and as such has authority in all heaven and on earth and in every person, especially now those who claim to follow him. If you have surrendered your life to him, you've been raised. Or other biblical language we could use is you've been born again. Have you heard that phrase before? Born again? I remember earlier in my life, uh, I came back. uh, I had moved out of the house. I was doing ministry and I came back. And uh, I forget exactly the context, but my mom said to me, you're not one of those born-again people, are you? You know, she had been raised Catholic and now was Presbyterian. And, and Catholics and Presbyterians don't often use the, the phrase born again. But I said, well, yeah, I am. And in fact, mom, so are you. Because <laughs> I knew my mom's faith. See, that language comes not from any sort of evangelical leader. It comes from Jesus himself. In John chapter 3, in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, if you don't know this, you might write it in your journal. Go look at John chapter 3. 
Nicodemus is a spiritual leader asking questions about eternal life and all of these things. And and he says in verse 3, Jesus says, Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's Jesus' language. And so we reflect on it in this passage. If I have been raised with Christ or if I have been born again, it's there to provoke us to say, all right, have I? Have I been born again? Have I been raised with Christ? Well, I'll tell you one way you can can kind of measure that. Look at verse 3. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You cannot be born again or raised with Christ unless you have first died to self. That's part of the gig. Even Jesus died to his own fleshly, earthly desires in this world. You ever think about that? Jesus, fully man, when he goes to the cross, gives up countless things he certainly would have desired. He desired friendship. Remember, in those last days, all the friends who abandoned him, friends who even denied knowing him. There was a moment in his flesh, Jesus might have certainly said, whoa, 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 maybe I can hedge this just a little bit. I don't want to lose that friendship, but he didn't. He let it go. Jesus certainly desired reputation or dignity. But for our sake, he gave those up. Think about what it must have been like for Jesus, the man, to hang naked on a cross in the most public setting there must have been. People walking by. He gave that up. He killed his earthly desires for your sake and mine. Should we say anything about comfort? How many of us try to hold on to comfort? It's really comfortable to be at the lake house. I I said I was glad to be back. I kind of lied, right? (laughs) There's a big part of me that was like, I want to stay here. But if we're going to live together in Christ, we die to self. We give up our earthly desires. Some of these desires are, are, are good, but, but you know, they're, they promise something false. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That when we give ourselves to earthly desires, these are desires that promise that they will satisfy and fulfill us forever. And they lie. Even the good ones. I desire for relationship with my family, so I'm going to pour everything into my family and think that my family will fulfill. Your family's not going to fulfill you. Not forever. Not fully. Not your job. Not your friends. Not your church. Nothing. Only Jesus. And so we hide ourselves in him. We give up our own desires. These desires that mark who we are often. 
And so when we hide ourselves in him, there's a point where we go, I don't even really know who I am anymore. Because I feel like I have to give up so many of these things that have defined me. And then we wait on the promise. Verse 4. This promise that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But the more and more we walk with Christ, we will begin to understand who we are. But we won't fully even know ourselves until Jesus returns. Right? All right, so what does that mean for the way we live? Let's get to that. Verses 5 through 11 put before us two lists of vices, both of which describe things that we need to put away if we are truly following Jesus. The first is right there before you. It's Colossians chapter 3. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me speak briefly just to each one of these words so that we understand what they mean. That phrase, sexual immorality, that comes from the the Greek word pornea, you might be able to hear the root for pornography in pornea. It speaks to all sexual activity that is forbidden by God. Words like fornication have been used in the scripture, even though it's one that has fallen out of vogue in our culture. uh, Prostitution also is implicit in this word, word. Every sexual activity not authorized by God falls under sexual immorality. You might be thinking now, all right, good, let's sex, now let's move on to the rest of them. Sorry. All five words have a sexual overtone to them. Sexual immorality, impurity is the state of being because we have given the members of our body in some sexually perverse way. And it, it calls to mind that state of being in the Old Testament when when you were now unclean and couldn't go back into the camp or among God's people, at least for a period of time, until you were made pure again. Passion, Greek word there is pathos. It talks about a passion that will control you. Now, it's not only uh, sexual passions. You put a bag of potato chips in a room with me, you will discover a passion that threatens to control me. It is hard not to eat that bag of potato chips for me. But most of the time when this word is used in Scripture, we're talking about sexual passions that take over and control you. Desire is an interesting word. This word desire is used all throughout the Scripture, and most of the time when that word desire is used, it's used in a positive sense. Let me show you one example. From Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2.17. So the same author writes this. Can we put that one up there? First, there we go. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, the word translated intense longing is the same word 
interpreted as desire in our passage. We made every effort to see you. And that's a good thing. It's good to desire relationship. But of course, the adjective evil is added in our text. That we are marked by evil desires. These desires that were good have now been twisted into something wicked. A manifestation of the sin that resides within every human being now. And finally, covetousness. It's not restricted to, but, but certainly includes the sexual realm. Remember the 10th commandment? Do not covet your neighbor's house. And do not covet your neighbor's wife, right? Right. There's a sexual overtone there too. Because that and frankly everything in this list is idolatry. What he's saying is, When we allow our desires for any of these things to trump our desire for relationship with God, that is the very definition of an idol. And so the sins of the body are a threatening idol in the life of of Christian. You ever... I don't know. Sometimes when I read a passage like this, I ask the question, why is God so concerned about sex? You ever ask that question? Why is he so concerned about the body, so concerned about sex? I mean, here I am. I get two weeks of vacation, and I come back, and I have to preach this? Like, I'm not, I'm like, woohoo, right? That's not my, I don't know. I suppose some preachers love to preach on this. I don't. Why is he so concerned about sex? Well, I think to understand that, we've got to back up and and taking the scripture as a whole, it's why the, the, the routine we've adopted of, of going through the whole of scripture from September to May is so important. We're going to do it again this September. Because we understand this narrative thread. Remember the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 in, in particular, that God made us with the desires that we have and, and they are good, at least at the beginning. God's the one who made it all. Genesis 1, we know that, right? He made the stars and the moon and the earth and the water and all of that. And as he's doing that, you can remember this. He's saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. When's the first time that God said something wasn't good? Do you remember? Someone call it out. Someone knows this. Not quite. There's a little before. There's something that wasn't good before that. Good try, though, Kathy. What? Someone said it. It's not good that the man is alone, right? He's going, I made this, it's good. I made that, it's good. I made this, it's good. Oh, wait, that's not good. It's not good that someone's alone. God made us to be in relationship with one another. That's why if you go further on in the creation account, so Genesis chapter 2, where kind of a... We zoom in on Adam and and the formation of the world. And Adam is there in the garden, and God is bringing by him all the animals. You remember this one? Right? And uh, Adam's like elephant, giraffe, penguin. He's naming them all, but no suitable partner could be found for him. And then in verse 23... Verse 23, God brings before Adam Eve. 
And depending on your Bible translation, you might, you might miss this. But verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2 uh, says this. Adam says, this at last. You know, this one translates it now, I think. It's like, no, now misses it. He says, at last. Something I've been longing for, desiring. There she is. God made us that way. That, of course, leads into the first marriage, verse 24, where man, we're told, will leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And for many in life, this relationship then is expressed most fully as it's consummated through sexual intimacy in the context of marriage as God designed it, and it's good. Now, God did make some for a relationship with others that are not within marriage. Paul himself is one of those. Do you recognize that? The very person that is writing this letter is a single man. And even he is designed by God for human relationship that is deep and fulfilling. Who could deny the words he just used in 1 Thessalonians that I put in front of you? Where he's saying, I have this deep longing to return to you. My heart is aching because I am away from you who I love so much. But it's not a sexual thing. I've not been in war. Some of you have been. But I've certainly heard of people, men in particular, who, are, who go to war together and there is an affection, a love, a, a deep relationship that forms. Not sexual, but boy, it's meaningful. Jonathan and David in the Old Testament are said to have had a love for one another that's greater than a man for a woman. It doesn't mean it's sexual. It means it's deep and meaningful. God made us this way. But even so, our desire for human relationship was never meant to take the place or be a substitute for our first relationship with God himself. Like our, the way we're made is to be in relationship with Jesus and to allow Jesus to be the one who ministers to our soul, who brings us to a place of peace and joy, who is our faithful partner. Adam and Eve forgot that. You know the story, right? Genesis 3. That they, they forsook the relationship they had with God. I said, I'm giving you all this. I can't wait to just spend time with you walking in the garden, all of this. Just don't do this one thing. Ah, screw you, God. Can a pastor say that? Sorry. They rebelled. Sin came in. And then what happened? Where do we find Adam and Eve after that first sin when God is walking in the garden? Hiding, hiding. They had forsaken the relationship with God, traded it for a relationship with, with one another, themselves, everything. Everything got twisted, and they were hiding. And now that sin that infected them and caused them to hide from God infects all of us as well. Sin has twisted the natural desire God has made us with. A desire that should be first and foremost for a relationship with him is now expressed in terribly wicked ways. 
I mean, who can deny the countless ways that sexual expression has been twisted in the world? For those who have been raised with Christ, right? This is how it begins. For those who have been born again in Him, for those who are no longer seeking to be formed by their earthly desires, but instead are putting their minds above, seeking a life that is, that is formed from above, our, our sexual life, the life in the body, is critical. It should fit who we are and point to the one we belong to. But let me put some frightening truth in front of you. From the Barna Group, you know, the group that does a lot of research uh, on American culture. From the Barna Group, a recent study suggested that 68%, almost 7 out of 10, church-going men, not just general men out there, not just, you know, those guys, those young people, church-going men, Seven out of ten church-going men and half of pastors surveyed view pornography on a regular basis. People who claim to have their life rooted in Jesus, people who teach that others should root their life in Jesus, are viewing pornography on a regular basis. And that same study suggested that only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch pornography. That is to say, 9 out of 10 Christian women say, yeah, I've seen it from time to time. No longer is God's word setting the standard for our sexual identity, for our understanding of the way we are called to use the body. Instead, that's media. That's entertainment. It's the internet. It's pornography. These are the things that are forming not just the mind of the world, but the Christian mind in America today. I mean, it's rare. Some pastors just won't do it. I think there's an opportunity to hold out grace and mercy and to share the gospel. It is rare for me to engage with, in premarital counseling with a young couple that is not already sexually active today. And I don't say this to condemn. It's not about condemnation. Now there is no longer any condemnation in Christ Jesus, right? We are covered by his grace and we are covered by his mercy. But we ought to clothe ourselves in a way that is right for those who follow Jesus. As an aside... That's why I think it's so important. If you have children in the home, and I know our, well, we had lots of people in the first service and the second service, less so. But still, you have, many of you are grandparents, care about, if, 
if you have children in the home who have access to the internet and you do not have some sort of protective filter, some sort of tool, you are, you are really endangering children. My family uses something called covenant eyes. I use it to protect my kids. And if I'm going to be honest, I use it to protect myself. Because I don't want to be one of those 50% of pastors. So it's a filter that I have to pay for. It's somewhat costly. And it's not foolproof. I tell my kids, you have to desire holiness. Because you're smarter than me on the internet. No doubt about that, right? But at least I can make it hard for you. If you're a grandparent and you are concerned about your children or grandchildren, here's an idea. Why don't you buy this for them? Don't tell them what they should do. Just help them. Your kids who are raising your grandkids, why don't you just say, hey, I heard this sermon and I'm going to, I just want to pay for this for you because I'm concerned. Because this stuff will not only destroy an individual, but it will harm the whole congregation, the whole church. Values related to the way we use our body, to our, to our sexuality, are destroying the church. How many churches are fracturing because of arguments related to same-sex marriage, gender identity, all of that stuff? Our desire with regard to the body must not be to fulfill our earthly desires. All of us have earthly desires, but the call of the Christian is to put them to death, to surrender them to Jesus, to say life is not found in fulfilling that, it's found in relationship with you, and so, Lord, would you help me? That's why we read in the Scripture in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in your midst. He's not primarily talking about the individual, but the church. That God dwells in our midst. We are his temple. And that's why he takes this so seriously. Notice verse 6 in Colossians. Go back there. On account of these sexual sins, the wrath of God is coming. And some are going, I <laughs> I'm not, so we have the words love first on the sign. I, I, wait, I don't like to think about God and wrath. Well, think about it this way. Some of you are fighting cancer in your body. A tumor that is threatening to steal your very life. Do you not want your oncologist to act with wrath towards that cancer? Of course you do. And God cares just as much, if not more, about his body, the church. And so he has said, I'm going to take care of this. Friends, we've got to put it away. We've got to take off those things that God's word says, do not belong to those who follow Jesus. All right, that's just the first list. Don't worry, the second list will be shorter and a bit easier. But no less important. No less important. You'll notice it in verse 8. But now you must put them away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The scripture is saying it's not just the, the, the sins of the body that will destroy an individual and a church. It is the sins of a tongue, of the tongue. How we talk to one another, especially when we find ourselves in challenging moments like when we're trying to navigate realities related to sexuality. That if we don't talk to each other in ways that are informed by Jesus himself, you remember the one who is patient, Gentle, kind, gracious, merciful. We can also bring harm to the body of Christ. It strikes me, uh, this, there's, I have no data for this one. Barna didn't tell me this. This is just my own observation, interpretation of the world. It strikes me that the very people who champion relationship with Jesus the loudest and the most are often the biggest jerks. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. I mean, I don't often talk this way, but we had a lady in our congregation a number of years ago. And she would talk continually about got to have a relationship with Jesus and is this person safe? She was a born-again person. That's who my mom meant when she said that, right? It's just this kind of... She would slander people. She was angry. She spoke with malice until finally I had had it and I said to her, look, hey... You can be lots of things in the life of our congregation. You can be Democrat. You can be Republican. You can be liberal. You can be conservative. You can be white. You can be black. You can be rich. You can be poor. But you can't be mean. (laughs) And if you have to be mean, you have to leave. It's the only person I've ever basically suggested they need to leave. And she left. Thank God. Because she threatened to destroy the church. And so too might we. I mean, when I look at this list, oh boy, I want to hide. What's that first word? Anger. If I don't hide my life in Christ, if I don't continually recognize that it's Jesus who sits at the right hand of God in authority and control and forget and believe that actually it's Clint who's in authority and control of his life and, frankly, of the church and of the family or whatever, and then things don't go my way, you know what happens? I'm ashamed to say a couple of you know too well what happens. For you've been the recipient of ungodly anger that I've had to repent for. It's true for all of us, friends. And it cannot mark a follower of Jesus. Let's wrap up just by reading the final verses. I'm not going to even comment on them much. But I want you to see, beginning at verse 9, God's word to you. Do not lie. Quit lying by the way you're living, by the words you're using. Don't lie about who you actually are. You belong to Jesus. So get rid of that stuff. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that, and see, see that you put off the old self with all of its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator as we look at Jesus continually more and more, fixing our eyes on him. Because here's the truth. In our midst, there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. There is not any longer rich or poor, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat. The only thing that marks us as a family is Jesus. And our desire for him above all else. For Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, that hurt a little bit. Would you minister to each one of us? Don't allow the word of the gospel to be stolen away. Remind us of the truth that we're saved by grace through faith alone. Help us not to put any hope in our own merit or any worldly identity other than you, but Lord, would you expose those parts of our life that are not right, that do not fit, that your word says needs to be gotten rid of. And would you help us to desire you, Lord Jesus, above all else for anything other than that is idolatry. It will bring harm to us, to the church, and dishonor to your name. It's by your name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.